All right. So I have been wrestling with a whole lot of stuff trying to get together for this morning. And um, there's going to be a lot of paper shuffling. Uh, because I'm probably going to bounce around a bit. Um, I wrote several pages and then decided that they were lousy and um, wrote a new outline at like 1 o'clock in the morning last night. Um, Which is not to say I'm not going to reference them. Um, What I wanted to talk about today originally was actually probably much more similar to what James spoke about last week. Um, and there have been, but there have been several things in between, uh, not since last week, but before. That was when I first, uh, Damon first asked me to come up and speak. And, um, in, in that intervening period, there's, there, uh, the materials that Damon gave to me for, as I was researching the subject, um, really very much changed what I wanted to speak about today and, and, uh, really challenged my thinking about a lot of things, Um, but specifically challenged my thinking regarding um, the nature of love and the nature of justice in the Christian life, Um, and really what many, if not most of us, who have grown up in the 20th century church have been taught about the nature of God's love, where that comes from why it matters, (laughs) um, and how in many ways it has led us to the struggles that James was talking about last week and Tom a bit the week before, and the the, uh, seeming conflict that we have between love and and justice. Um, So, as I said, I was planning sort of to talk more about our offended sense of justice in the face of what scripture tells us is wrong. Um, you know, how do we love people that we believe to be actively breaking the law, if you will, to be getting away with injustice? Um, and does the love that God has given us simply mean and that we are to extend to others mean that we just have to let that go to say that, you know, love covers that up? Um, and most of us would answer with a resounding no and probably turn to Romans 6.1 and say, what then shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But somehow this still feels very insufficient. Uh, clearly, we all continue to sin. And we affirm that God does not see gradations to our sin. So although the earthly consequences of our actions may vary, the eventual consequence of all sin is the same. Eternal separation from God. Yet we recognize, as James pointed out last week, that Jesus regularly ate with sinners and tax collectors, somehow managing to show them love while not condoning their actions. And as we continue the struggle, we turn to John 8 and Matthew 7, 5 and we struggle with the notion of casting stones and removing planks and whether or not we have the right to judge people because we have so many problems of our own. And as we continue that fight even further, we come to where we attempt to understand then, in in the face of that conflict, how it is that we should understand love. How should we define it? 
and what should what does that mean to how we handle these other issues? So that's you know that's something I think I know myself I've struggled with my entire life, <laughs> um, and I am pretty confident that I am not alone in that struggle. And beyond just that, um, when I was researching for this, one of the materials that Damon gave me was a series of lectures from Regent College in 2007. And a man named uh, Professor Nicholas Wolterstorff. It's a fun name to say. You're going to be hearing it a lot. Um, because I found those lectures tremendously eye-opening, um, in large part because what Professor Wolterstorff um, set out to do and, and did in a very real way was to explore the 20th century church's conception of love where it came from, and how it has impacted our sense, not so much, not just of what he calls retributive justice, but of what he refers to as prime or primary or social justice. And that's a, it's a very, very um, interesting <laughs> topic to me, to say the least, um, when he presents the subject, uh, and I'm going to be doing a great deal of quoting from these lectures, and in part this message this morning is going to be some, uh, somewhat of a summary of that and a little bit around it and beyond it, but um, I'm certainly not going to cover what uh, he covered as a uh, professor of philosophy in three you know, 45-minute lectures this morning. Uh, I'm going to give a sort of summary overview of some of the concepts uh, that he was presenting, um, as well as, you know, really some of the things that it triggered in me, um, my experience in the church uh, throughout my life, and I think um, very much what many of us have been taught about Christian love. Professor Wolterstorff began his series of lectures by making the generalization that many, if not most, Protestant Christians are uncomfortable with the category of justice, especially, though not only, those who count themselves as evangelical or conservative. And as he said this, at first, you know, I nodded my head in thinking of the aforementioned struggle that I was just talking about. But then I thought about some of the church bodies I've been a part of over the years, and some of the experiences I've had. And it seems to me that far from being, it seemed to me that far from being a struggle, justice seemed to sort of always be waiting in the wings, ready to pounce if I stepped out of line. Uh, or anybody else did. Sometimes I was the one doing the pouncing. Um, I guess my wife raises her eyebrows at me. <laughs> um, and so then I, I, I thought, well, maybe he's speaking of the quote-unquote contemporary church, the love conquers all movement, if you will, um, and, and that entire section of the Christian faith. But he continued with a qualification that Protestants are not generally uncomfortable with the category of retributive justice, nor are Catholics and Orthodox Christians. They talk familiarly about meeting out justice, about rendering to wrongdoers what is due them, about prisons and so forth. It is with the category of non-retributive 
or what I call primary justice, that Protestant Christians are uncomfortable. Non-retributive or primary justice being that mode of justice which, when violated, makes retributive justice relevant. In other words, something has to have been wronged in order for us to have retribution rights. <laughs> and that seems, this concept seemed to me interesting. And as he began to explore further, and he offered several different reasons for why we experience that discomfort, um, many of which I think have probably already popped into your mind. Um, you know, in an era, era where we are struggling to deal with legislation regarding immigration reform, food stamps, minimum wage, any number of other so- issues of social justice, it's very relevant. Um, but it has also been pretty heavily associated with the pro- political and religious liberalism, the left, if you will. Um, it's also been associated with various rights movements, especially throughout the 20th century. And beyond that, it has been presented that, you know, the idea of natural rights, um, many see that as stemming from the idea of possessive individualism. Um, I'm in it for me, my rights, my needs, um, selfishly grabbing for benefits, for what benefits me, regardless of its impact on others. And in many ways, this is how people see social justice um, as, as a selfish, uh, as a selfish issue, um, and also as, as an issue of, that belongs to those opposed to God or opposed to the church. And I don't think when I say it that way that any of us would agree with that notion. <laughs> um, now, Professor Waltersdorf, of course, offers a great deal of evidence supporting all of these suppositions, and um, I'm not going to do all of that this morning. Um, I don't really feel that it's necessary because I'm pretty confident that as I mention these things, most, if not all of you, can think of conversations you've had along these lines with friends, family, coworkers, etc. Um, what I'm interested in is that despite these reasons, um, Professor Wolterstorff suggested that there is actually a much, much deeper reason for our discomfort with the idea of justice. And specifically that that discomfort stems from our understanding of love. And more specifically from our understanding of the term agape, um, which has been taught in the church for most of the 20th century very heavily. I know I've heard it in, uh, I lost count of how many sermons. Um, And the idea of agape, as has been taught in the 20th century church, has been that this is a purely sacrificial form of love, as distinct from the Greek eros, or physical love, or phileo, or brotherly love. Um, Agape represents pure sacrificial love, the placing of others above ourselves. And that's what we've been taught. And I'm not going to say it's entirely wrong. But what is fascinating to me is where did that particular understanding of agape come from? And what are the ramifications of that teaching? 
Woltersdorf presents an incredibly compelling argument that our understanding of this term and its meaning to the Christian life uh, actually stems from and has been deeply influenced by uh, 20th century philosophical thought. Uh, specifically, uh, as expressed by the Swedish theologian Anders Nygren, um, who, though most other philosophers and theologians essentially throughout everything else he ever wrote, as far as thought, for whatever reason, his interpretation of agape stuck. And it stuck with everybody. So you will find him quoted and referred to and referenced. You will find that his interpretation of agapic love is what is mimicked by Kierkegaard, by Niebuhr, by Karl Barth. Just go down the list. It's kind of bizarre. <laughs> and that right there really got me thinking because I'm listening to him talk and I'm thinking, wow, those names all sound really familiar, but that's not usually who I think of when I think of defining good Christian theology. I don't usually think, yeah, I'm going to go you know, work on my accurate... Orthodox theology, I'm going to go pick up Kierkegaard and Bart. That's, that's going to go well. <laughs> um, so that seemed a really odd thing to me. But realistically, there is a great deal of, um, as Tom mentioned, as James mentioned, of our culture, of the world in which we live, that we simply cannot escape. And this type of thinking um, has... Deep, those branches of thought that even as Christians we may discount or not or, or think that doesn't really impact us. They're over there doing their philosophy thing um, has had deep and meaningful impacts on Christian thought, belief, and action. So what's the problem? What is what is um, Nigren's view of agape that his uh, that Walter Storff and myself find so deeply problematic? and that has been so penetrating in 20th century thought. Specifically, um, Nigren's view of agape was that it was a form of benevolence, a seeking of the well-being of others, seeking to increase the good in his or her life. Karl Barth actually describes agapic love as, one, as where one gives himself to another with no expectation of return, in a pure venture, he identifies with the other's interests in utter independence of the question of the other's attractiveness and what the other has to offer. That probably sounds pretty familiar to most of you. So the question then is, what's the problem with it? <laughs> According to Nigren and the other philosophers of the 20th century, in order to be genuine agapic love, as was enjoined upon us by God and by Christ um, in when Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? To love one another, to love your God and to love one another. Um, those are both forms of the word agape. It's um, agapao. And so if we're looking at this and saying, this is how we have been commanded to love others. So according to Nigren and his other fellow philosophers, and they have been grouped, if you will, into their own little title. They get referred to as the, the Agapists. 
Um, and actually, oddly enough, this whole philosophical concept falls under an umbrella called agapism. Um, it has its own little world. Um, but they saw this, as I said, as a form of benevolence. But specifically, they saw this as a completely pure form of benevolence. In other words, it had to be completely free of all other forms of love. It had to be spontaneous, and it could have no motivation whatsoever outside of itself. And you may be thinking, again, some of this sounds a little bit familiar. (laughs) There are some serious issues with that train of thought. Um, Just for an initial example, um, they would say you have, there are, you know, they categorize all sorts of various forms of love from other than benevolence. There's also, of course, self-love. There's the love of attachment. There's the love of attraction. And there's the love of advantage, things I do because it helps me. Uh, They might refer, they would categorize in part, basically, the love you have for a child or your child, for instance, as a love of attachment. I love them because I'm attached to them. They mean something to me. What Nigren and the others would say in this case is that even if you are self-sacrificially loving your child, because you are attached to them, that is not New Testament agape. Because the love itself is not pure. It is tainted, if you will, by another form of love, which provides motivation beyond pure self-sacrifice. Seems like kind of an odd thing to say. (laughs) Um, Wolterstorff sums up the Nigrinist perspective of love as follows. Benevolence in Nigrinist agape Benevolence is Nigrinist agape only if the explanation as to why one regards the well-being of the other as an end in itself is an explanation that applies to everybody that is one's neighbor. So not only do they expect that this love would be completely self-giving with no other form of motivation, but that it would also be applied equally. In other words, my self-sacrificial love of Tom has to be exactly the same as my self-sacrificial love of Laura. Regardless of our relationship, regardless of anything else in my life or their life, there can be no attachment to the worth of the object being loved. So there's nothing in the object itself that requires that I love it or motivates me to love it. Um, The object itself is seen as having no intrinsic value, and yet I am supposed to love it. And obviously that raises the question, well, why? (laughs) Um, And Kierkegaard actually answered that. It was answered in various ways, but Kierkegaard is the one that was referenced here and and probably the easiest to get your head around, which and my head around, um, which is, he said, it's our duty to God. This is our duty. We have been called by God to love everybody. Um, and so they, even though they have no value, 
uh, in and of themselves, because God commanded us to do it, we're required to. Now, I imagine that you're coming up very quickly to many of the issues with this form of philosophy. <laughs> um, and you may be thinking that this makes no sense at all, and how could anyone believe this stuff? Um, and I don't have time, of course, to plagiarize Walter Storff's entire lecture, as I mentioned, but um, he has a great many uh great many points of clarification on, and um, on this point. And I think one of the things that I found very shocking, even for Professor Walterstorff, was, was to say that even though he disagreed with nearly everything Anders Nygren thought and taught, um, he had to respect the man for his philosophical rigor, which is to say when he had a thesis, he followed it all the way to its conclusion, no matter how ridiculous that may seem at the end. So his way of working through that and getting past sort of the nonsensical nature of some of the conclusions that come out of this philosophy was to see it as purely the shocking nature of Christ's revelation. It's like, yep, that's freaking weird. Isn't God amazing? <laughs> so I'm going to shuffle for a second. So, as I was saying, in their view, agape has to be spontaneous. Which means that it can have nothing to do with justice. Because justice is to give a person what they deserve. It is to respond to a requirement. It is something that we owe the other party. And if that in their view, New Testament agapic love was to be spontaneous and completely uncontaminated by any other motivation, it had to ignore justice. Because justice in itself provided an outside motivation and therefore interfered with the purity of the love. So, why come to this conclusion in large part, they viewed love this way because, and I think, again, many of us have heard this, they viewed all of God's love as purely through the forgiving sacrifice of the cross and said that this is the example of God's love, which is to say that forgiveness in that regard, unwarranted forgiveness, and justification as the primary example of God's love. Now, they had all kinds of ways of working around this, um, but Professor Walterstorff raised the immediate and obvious, uh, to a certain extent, problem with this particular line of thinking, which is to say that if you are going to put forgiveness in the seat of the purest form of this agape love, you immediately have a problem. Because to forgive someone 
means that something has been violated. There has been a right that has been wronged. So if you are going to attempt to say that I can, you cannot, to attempt to say that forgiveness is what is indicative of this highest form of love, you run into the issue that you, how do you forgive if there is no justice? There is, if there is nothing about this recipient that morally requires our forgiveness. Now, in order to forgive, as I said, something has to have been wronged. There is justice that has been violated. So, if I am unaware of that, or if I am simply refusing to acknowledge that, you could hardly call that forgiveness. So, if I simply don't realize that I've been wronged, I can't really, you can't really say that I've forgiven you. I didn't even know you did me anything wrong, so how can I possibly have forgiven what I don't even know exists? Um, on the other hand, if you say that, you know, it's not something that I can be bothered with, if it's a, it, I don't, okay, you've wronged me, but it's not worth my time to even bother rectifying it. That's not forgiveness either. That's just ignoring it. <laughs> there is the act of forgiveness itself requires the recognition of justice. And that, of course, puts uh, this position in a bit of difficulty. <laughs> um, And now I'm going to do some more paper shuffling and find my notes for this. So what do you do with that? Well, the Nigranists you know, didn't actually have an answer. Uh, Walter Storff offers what their probable answer would be. Coming from their initial position that agopic love must in fact be justice blind, or not blind justice, but blind to justice, um, he suggests that their response to this immediate challenge would be, okay, all right, but if it can't be blind to justice, it just has to be not motivated by it. So I have to be aware of it. I can be alert to the existence of justice and the claims thereof, but it can't have any, anything to do with my motivation for my actions. Um, the immediate problem that you run into with this is that with this view, love will, that view of love will lead often, if not most times, to injustice. Love itself at that point will be the cause of injustice. Because if I must ignore justice as a motivation and love all, love all people equally and seek to do every, to do good by each person, so I have to do what is good for that person, uh, 
equally with, with no, no bias, no preference, and no regard to the demands of justice, then I will more likely than not cause injustice. Um, the example Professor Wolterstorff gave, and I will con- convey, was of a man who comes across um, a husband and wife in a physical altercation in an alley, and the husband is beating the wife. And he is trying to discern what action to take in order to love both parties equally in a way that would be beneficial to them. Now, clearly, is from our point of view, the demand of justice would be to step in and protect the woman. That's sort of a given. Um, but in this regard, from this point of view, while that would be good for the woman, it may not necessarily be perceived as good for the man who is doing the beating. Um, you could attempt to make the argument that you would ultimately be doing them good, uh, and hopefully that they would have a change of heart and realize they were wrong, etc., etc., etc. But the reality is that you could step in and do that and call the police, and he goes to jail and is livid and angry and doesn't feel that you've helped him at all. So what do you do? That right there is a prime example of the kind of injustice caused by this particular view of love. Continuing a bit further, you end up ultimately with the ends justifying the means because what you have to do is you begin to push out where the good is. In the, in the story that I just related, we're worried about their particular perceived immediate good, right? So that's a very close form of good. Is it good now? Right? So what we have to do then is say, well, okay, I can't make that decision based on what's good now, so I'm just going to push that a little further out and push that a little further out. It will be good later. Ultimately, it will be good. And so we get to the point where we say, ultimately, my goal is their eternal salvation, and that is the epitome of my love. And any means that I use between this and that to achieve that end is warranted. In other words, to use the cliched phrase, the ends justify the means. Because as long as the goal of eternal well-being is in sight and achieved, whatever it takes to get there is okay. Now, I think that it is pretty patently obvious that I disagree with Nigrin's point of view. I think all of us would. Um, But I think it's equally obvious, uh, at least to me, um, just how much of an impact this view of love has had on the 20th century church. As I said earlier, I cannot think of the number of sermons I have heard on these subjects that have been in one form or another, derivatives of this philosophy and this way of thinking. So, Professor Wolterstorff, um, continuing on, also then asks, you know, actually I'm going to back up a little bit. 
So not only do we have this particular view of love that has permeated the church, but we also have some very peculiar views of justice. Not the uh, least of which is that many, many people in the church view justice as an Old Testament idea. Um, It is something that was supplanted or replaced in the New Testament by love and is no longer relevant uh, in the world in which we currently live. And then one has to ask, okay, well, where did that idea come from? And I apologize for jumping over a little bit, but bear with me. And um, Professor Walterstorff suggests, actually, um, that the uh, English translation of the New Testament is one of the primary culprits of our misunderstanding of justice in this regard. So there are several words, of course, that can be translated as just or justice, but one of the primary ones is the Greek word dikaios. Um, Dikaiosune would be justice, dikaios would be just. And interestingly enough, if you are reading Plato's Republic, that is how the word is translated, universally. If you come across a a deep root word in Plato, it's going to be translated justice. In the New Testament, though, more often than not, dikaios words are translated instead as righteousness, which seems to me very different. Um, You could certainly come and and try and pull those two things into a close similarity, but ultimately, I think most of us would probably agree with the argument that if we were to say that someone is righteous, we are referring to their personal character, who they are, how they behave, etc., etc., Whereas if we speak of justice, we are speaking of social relationships, how they relate to others. Do they do what is required of them and give what is due to those around them? So then, of course, the question is raised, why the discrepancy of translation? Um, Why is it that this translation is consistent in essentially every English version of the Bible you can buy it is translated righteousness more often than not. And so for those, um, well, the simple answer would be, you know, obviously there must be something in the context, right? They're making a contextual judgment that this is a better understanding of the word in this context, that it's not, um, that the term itself is not hard and fast, but rather a bit more ambiguous as to its actual meaning. But let's take a case in point. And I am going to pull this up. In the Beatitudes, as Christ speaks to the people. In verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for dikaios' sake, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but in my text here, that is translated righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Professor Waltersdorf made an interesting point, which is to say that while some people may be persecuted for their personal character, it's possible, um, it seems more likely that they would either be um, admired or ignored for the most part. That's a, that's a personal issue. Um, whereas those that are seeking justice, that are actively pursuing a change in relationships and the interaction between other human beings, are very, very likely to be persecuted. Um, which is not to say that these interpretations of, of this particular verse are mutually exclusive. Not to say that there is not a part of our personal character and a part of our um, seeking uh, social interactions and the rightness therein. So what other pieces, what, what other passages of Scripture might we turn to to try and understand where this balance falls and um, how this interaction occurs? Well, one of the passages that Nigren and I'm not going to go into his crazy interpretation of it, actually, um, used, and, and we're going to use for a slightly different purpose, was the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, where, Matthew, where Christ is speaking and says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to take with me to take a denarius, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, I don't know about you, but that particular parable has I've heard taught many times over, but I've also often struggled with it because it seems you could make an argument as to whether or not they were wronged in, in their treatment. However, the words in these places are a little different. So, going out in the morning, 
And he says to them, you go into the vineyard too, the second group, and I will give whatever is dikaios to you. Now here, we have it translated as right, but it would be possible to translate it as just. I will give you whatever is just. And when they grumbled against him, and he, and he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Again, the word here is a derivative of dikaios. I am doing you no injustice. It makes it much harder to argue with him whether you like the guy or not. Because you can say, this is what I owed you. I have done what is just. This is what I have, was required to do. We agreed to this. And I have met the requirement. If I choose to go above and beyond the requirement to others, that is my generosity. But I have not done you any wrong because I have done what was required of me and I have given you what I owed. And like I said, whether we like the guy or disagree with him or whatever, that we can't really argue with very well. So, it is an interesting challenge then as we look through this to determine the balance between justice and righteousness. And in looking at justice in the New Testament, we find several passages in, as I mentioned earlier, um, a world with taking into account all of the influences that I've mentioned regarding love and other pieces. But I want to read you a couple of passages from Jesus identifying himself Um, from Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. When he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Matthew 11, John sends his followers to check with Jesus if he's really the Messiah. (laughs) uh, John's understanding of his role was that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And yet, 
to his view, like so many, if not most others at the time, what Christ was doing was not in line with his expectation of the Messiah's activities. And so he sends two messengers to Jesus and they ask Christ, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now that section there where the poor have good news also, um, I believe that Dikaios root, but I couldn't mistake it on that one. The point is that in many ways Christ came and preached justice. It just wasn't retributive justice. It wasn't the justice of condemnation. It wasn't what many people think of when they think of justice. It wasn't you have done wrong and therefore justice demands that you are punished. Christ came and preached justice on the grounds that God has loved you. This is the world that God has created. And therefore you are to be just in how you treat others. So now I've probably gotten a little bit sidetracked and my wife is looking at me thinking, okay, then get to the point. Um, The point is that it all relates, um, that we have been taught a certain views in our lives of love and of justice, that we never had reason particularly in our general thought to question but in looking at where some of those definitions came from and the shortcomings of those understandings of love as they have been taught to us, we see that it has added to our struggle as Christians, that it has made it harder for us to do what God has actually called us to do, to actually treat our fellow man with justice, to seek good and to love, but not just be, not in some removed ephemeral way that has no form of attachment. I think what I wanted to point out more than anything today is that these ways of thinking have really led to shape our understanding of love and our understanding of justice and have made following God's commands harder. And yet I think all of us know Micah 6.8. And what does the Lord require of you but to love justice, to walk humbly with your God? And I think many of us over the years, myself included, have often wondered what form of justice God meant 
when he spoke through Micah in that verse? What does it mean to love justice? To love retributive justice? To love the meeting out of punishment for those who have broken the law? I don't think so. I don't think Christ preached that anywhere. (laughs) On the contrary, I believe it is to give to other men what is due them on account of God's love for them and the love that he has called us to. Professor Wolterstorff offered an alternative definition of agape um, in order to try and encompass these pieces. And I think the language that he chose is probably a little soft, but I understood what he was reaching for. As he tried to say, perhaps we could think of it more as caring for. Caring for the other person. Caring about their needs, their good. Not in the absence of reason, not in the absence of justice or logic. But with all of those things entwined and together to care for our fellow man. I think it's definitely a good place to start. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never changes and that though ways of thinking may change, that ways of looking at things may change, you and your word remain steadfast and your calls remain the same. Your love remains the same. Your seeking of justice for all of us here remains the same. Lord, you are the God of the widow and the fatherless, of the poor and the wretched. You are the God of the sinner who has been forgiven through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. What you demanded of retributive justice you poured out on your Son so that we might express both love and loving justice to those around us. Thank you, Lord, for this great blessing. May we take it to heart. May we understand it. And may we extend it to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.